Welcome everyone. This is Carlos from Seedcamp. Today we have a guest from a firm that we've spoken to in the past, Fresco Capital, but the European side of, of the operations, head up by Stephen Forte. And what we want to cover is a lot of the background that you have, Stephen, in, uh, in tech and, and you yourself being someone who has moved away from the, the role as founder and also service provider and CTO to that of an investor. And we always like to start off with uh, the very beginnings of, of the man behind the myth. And so maybe you can just help us understand what you did in college and what you did immediately afterwards. Well, thank you very much for having me. And when I first went to college, I thought I wanted to be a professor of history. So nothing could be really be further from a high-tech entrepreneur. And I, I felt that studying history, and I studied economics, I studied political science, I just thought that that would be a really fun career. And what happened was, when I graduated, I realized that I didn't want to do that anymore. I realized that you were long nights in the library, unrewarding, all the real groundbreaking research has been done already. And I went out to Wall Street, I went out to Wall Street, and I had no degree that would prepare me to get into Wall Street. I had a classic liberal arts degree. I can talk about maybe classic liberal economics, or I can talk about communism in the Cold War, but I was not equipped to learn about you know, buying on margin and working on Wall Street. But all my friends worked on Wall Street, so I was able to talk my way into a job on Wall Street. And that was my first exposure to just the finance world and, and actually the professional world for that matter as well. And what was that first job then? <laughs> this is actually a pretty interesting one. I was more or less a runner on the New York Stock Exchange. Oh, really? With the specialists? Yeah. Way. So this is way, way back around like 2003, 2004. And I was able to, as I said, talk, you know, talk my way into it because I was, I was athletic enough where I said, oh, I can go do that. But I was just, they, they liked that I was very eager. And I was part of that generation, I think, that where hard work really paid off in, on Wall Street before like the big bonuses and all of that came. So it, I did it for about a year. So like you'd run in and out of the blue room and then all that stuff. Exactly. Oh, cool. And for a little while, I was reconciling mutual funds. Uh, that didn't work out too well for me. And that's when I knew it was time to go because they would put you on a runner for only about six months. Cool. And um, once, that, once that was over, it was kind of like a try before you buy when you got into the firm. And then I actually took a job that was reconciling those mutual funds precisely because it had a computer on the desk. Not every... You know, this is back, you know, 1994, 21 years ago on Wall Street. Not every person had a computer or a laptop on, on their desk. And, of course, smartphones weren't invented yet. So I took a boring job precisely because I had the computer on the desk. Okay. And so then at some point you must have been like, all right, this is uh, exceeding my capacity to be entertained. So what happened afterwards? Uh, I, I joke around. I, I, I say video games saved my, um, you know, changed my career. And I, I've told the story a few times. But what happened was I played a lot of Castle Wolfenstein. And I was a conservative, well, I was an aggressive player, but I was conservative in my save as. I would always save the game, and when I got to a new level, I'd go like save as, level two, save as, halfway through level two, save as, level three. And the long and the short of it is my boss calls me in one day, and I was like the guy, right, that, you know, can't print from Excel, talk to Steve, because I was always the techie, but, you know, I was, I was still just reconciling mutual funds. So he called me and he goes, I need you to recover some sensitive documents. And you can't look at them. They're actually the employee reviews, like your colleagues, yourself. But you have to recover them from me. And I'm like, hmm, I've never really recovered things before, but let me give it a shot. And it turns out he was writing in a template and he was just hitting the save button and then writing over it again and hitting the save button. So he wrote 20 reviews and only saved one. And I explained to him the difference between save and save ads. And he was like, it actually took him a few minutes to figure it out. This wasn't a stupid person. I'm sure he went to some fancy business school. 
I'm sure he's listening right now and he's not going to be offended. Right I hope he's listening right now and know that he changed my life. <laughs> he definitely propelled me into entrepreneurship because when I realized that the senior leadership uh, you know, at a, at a really prestigious financial institution didn't know the fundamentals of like you know, Windows file system, right? Um, I said, hmm, maybe I should actually go out and do something on my own. So that was when you decided you're going to start the, your services company. Right. So what happened is I was teaching myself on the side at nights and weekends, and then I started to weave it into my job. I started with things like Excel macros, and I got a little more advanced with Lotus Script and VBA, and eventually worked my way up to things like Access Databases, and you know, even got into things like SQL Server, and was trying to learn things like C Sharp on the... I'm not C Sharp didn't exist. What was it? Uh, C++ on the yeah. side. And I decided that I can go out and build the types of systems that the company I was at was looking for. So what would happen is they would bypass IT and build these big behemoth spreadsheets and automate it with macros and sometimes link it to a backend data server or sometimes link it to an access database or what have you. And I said, hmm, I can have a career setting those things up. And that's pretty much what I did. I did that for three or four years. It was, to be honest, it was some of the most exciting time in my career because in those three or four years, I must have went to 20, 25 different companies per year as a contractor for three, four, or five weeks at a time. And what would happen is I would learn everything about those places. And I realized that every company was different because by the time I was 24, I probably had experience at, you know, maybe 75 different companies. That's probably five lifetimes worth of, you know, being in the workforce. Yeah. No, that's very interesting. I, I think to some extent, it's the origins of your sort of entrepreneurial background. Did you have employees? Uh, I, I actually had some subcontractors in the subcontractors in the very beginning, but at the very end, I wound up having five employees, and it started the transition from me being very highly technical to having to go out and doing sales and marketing. So that was an interesting transition because I was so still tell, the guy tell us about that transition because I think a lot of founders sometimes find themselves into having been the original uh, developer, and then all of a sudden, wait a second, now I got to sell this stuff, and this is actually my main role. What was that like for you? What was that transition like? It was quite difficult, actually, because what happens is, as I was doing this, I was at the same time being the software development manager. So I was mentoring the guys that were a little younger than me, and I was all of 24, but I was you know, hiring guys that I would meet at user groups and things mm -hmm. like that. And I found it pretty hard where I went out, and I went to NYU and took a continuing ed class on like sales and marketing, you know, basic business skills, and I didn't really know how to do any of that. And a little later in my career, I decided to go out and get an MBA because I felt that it would give me some of those skills that I'd be able to contribute to building a business. Okay. And when you were applying to the MBA, what would you say that the biggest sort of hole that you identified that you had? And I'm going to ask that question in two ways. The first one is the hole you knew that you had at that moment in time. And now looking back, the hole that you knew that would have allowed you to scale that services company. Well, actually, I, I, I did the MBA. I was already at a um, I was already at a startup, and I'll tell you the exact moment when I knew I needed an MBA. But I didn't do it for a few more years later. This was after the dot com crash. We took 30, 30 something million dollars of venture funding, and we hired a whole big team, and we eventually laid off two thirds of that team. And at one point, the CEO came up to me and she said, "I would like you to cut, you know, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars from the operating, or I forget what it was, no, the capital, but no, from the operating budget. That meant I'd have to lay at least one person, more person off, or something like that." So I actually went into the capital budget and you know reduced that by one hundred fifty thousand. You know, delayed some servers into the next year and did things like that. 
And then she came back and said, oh, that's the capital budget, but you know, that's all depreciable assets. Like, no, we need it from the operating budget. And I had no idea the difference between a capital budget and operating budget. I had no idea, you know, in other meetings, I had no idea the difference between accrual accounting and cash accounting. I said something in a meeting that was today, you know, I realized was ridiculously stupid. And it was, what was that? <laughs> I said something about bringing in revenue. We were on a subscription model. Yeah. And I forget how much, let's just say the subscription was a hundred US dollars per month. And I said something like, oh, so that just means we got a hundred dollars in revenue. Like, I had no idea that you recognized the revenue across the 12 months of the subscription. I just, it's the basic one-on-one when you do cash and accrual. Yeah. And, you know, these types of conversations, you know, I was now a CTO of a startup. I was, I was at board meetings. I was expected to have these, you know, have this type of input and know this type of knowledge. And I didn't. So that was the motivating factor for uh, going and getting the MBA. So if, if I pause there for a second, you put yourself in the shoes of a founder who's currently in the role of CTO slash CEO and does not have the luxury of putting a pause on their startup to go and do an MBA. What, um, what would you recommend? What would you recommend them as a starting point, if, if any, and how have you worked with them to, to sort of sell, solve some of these things and how much of it can just wait? So uh, first of all, I actually did executive MBA. So I was doing startup and executive MBA on the weekends. It was really tough. I don't necessarily recommend that either. So the way to answer your question, the way to, for somebody to get started for a, um, it's actually easy probably for a technical person to go get started. Mm -hmm. A technical person needs to understand the basics of a balance sheet mm -hmm. and the basics of accounting, the, the raw basics. Mm -hmm. So they can go and find any community college or any local university that's continuing education and take a, you know, it's usually one night a week or twice a week. And they can go out and do that. If they don't have the time or the means to go out to a continuing university and do something like that, there's a good number of books. Like one of them I recommend is called, um, I think it's Financial Accounting for the Non-Financial Manager. It explains everything about a balance sheet. Here's the funny thing. For a techie, it's actually really easy. Because techies, by definition, are pretty good at math, pretty good at numbers, really good at pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. When I was doing my MBA, a lot of people were struggling with, you had to balance the balance sheet, you know, assets, mm -hmm. liabilities. I was a whiz at it, and I had no financial trading, despite the fact that I did a little bit of finance work right after university that yeah. I explained before. And I was a whiz at it because, to me, it was like solving, it was like solving a coding problem. It was like yeah. solving a coding experiment. For the CEO that happens to be the non-technical CEO or the non-technical founder, I've actually found a lot of times that these non-technical founders do not understand the technical side, just the way that the technical founders don't understand the business side. And it actually is a, a, a significant liability on the business. Hmm. Uh, it's a significant liability for more than one reason, but one reason is recruiting. But the second reason is by not having that fundamental um, decision, there are technical decisions that the CTO would make that can lock the business into certain strategies that you don't realize or just make certain types of mistakes. And at the truest common denominator, you want to be able to talk in the same language. So mm -hmm. I think for the non-technical co-founder, mm -hmm. going out to a general assembly or something like that and taking an HTML5 yeah. class or just taking a, a very, very basic JavaScript class because mm -hmm. it'll teach you the constructs and at least they'll learn some of the language. Yeah. But I will admit it's probably a little harder because it's a deeper investment. Yeah, of course. But if we go back to the, the, the point of view of a technical founder and maybe we, we abstract that role to a role that ends up being as part of a board. In your experience now as an investor and the kinds of board discussions that have happened in, in, in uh, startups that you work with, what are the conversations that a technical founder should be having at the board level? And how much of that is split between, hey, let me tell you about the product, and what kind of strategic thinking do you expect in a CTO at the board level when they're present? 
Okay, that's actually a really great question because I find that a lot of CTOs that sit on boards fall to one of two categories. They're disengaged and they're on the board because they're an equal co-founder or they're, or they're one of the three co-founders so they own you know, 25-35% of a company. Mm. And they're disengaged and they let the board um, they let the board meeting be run by their non-technical co-founders. And I, and, and I find that very dangerous, both from a professional standpoint for the organization, but also from a, from a personal development for that individual. Mm-hmm. So that individual's, you know, potentially just outsourcing their future to their, to their true founders. Yeah. They're not necessarily having an equal say. The second category I put a CTO in is that they, they tend to want to talk about the product in, in very deep details, like like explaining the features and talking about the team or talk about how they're hiring. And that's actually, neither of those categories make sense. It's the rare CTO that you see at the true breakout startups that have, the they look at the market and see where the direction is heading and they are able to superimpose over that what the implications are for the business. So a great example, think about just as recently as four or five years ago, you're a CTO at a major organization or, or at a startup and you have to say, we need to be mobile first. And just by saying that, it sounds very geeky, but by saying we have to be mobile first, because that's what the trend is leading towards, then that leads to a whole discussion how the company is structured, how the, how the product is built. It becomes a very non-technical conversation extremely fast. And now we're seeing things like just today, I think, or yesterday, Google made the big announcement for the advanced mobile web pages of what that means. And the implications of that are no JavaScript mm. and very difficult to track users. If this is something that a CTO's opinion is going to take off, it's something they need to talk about very at a high level uh, strategically at the board. Mm. And what's interesting for the investors on the board, their other CTOs are probably not saying that. So they're going to turn around and think that this is one of the most performing companies and performing CTOs because they're not getting it at their other board meetings. So they're, they're doing a good service to their investors, but they're, they're going to stand out amongst mm. the portfolio. And how do you see the role... Uh, maybe, maybe not necessarily the role of the CTO changing as the company grows, which is kind of the, the original question I was going to ask you, but rather, what is the path of evolution or the path of maturation that you expect in a CTO as a company grows? Is this a role where increasingly they're delegating and therefore they actually are entirely operating at the sort of strategic level with very little knowledge to the development? Or how much of them are they still injecting into it the way that, let's say, the, the Apple model where you know, there's an expectation that some, some of the senior management there was still very active in product development? What, what's, the, what's worked best in your eyes? Well, I'll start backwards from, from the beginning of your question where you asked what's the logical progression of it. I assume you mean you have the typical you know, three-person founder startup where you have the, you know, the hacker, the hipster, and the, what's the other one? <laughs> the hustler. hustler. <laughs> right. But you have your, you know, classic kind of sales and marketing person, your classic kind of operational and CEO kind of person, your classic technical person. And in their early days, they're going to be writing code. I mean, obviously. And they're yeah. going to be writing lots of code and they're going to be responsible maybe for everything. Yeah. And as the company scales, they're going to be required, and this is that first hurdle, to hire people. And this is actually the first gate that they have to go through because I've seen companies where they were not able, their existing CTO or or technical co-founder was not equipped to hire people. It was either that the co-founder was more like an electrical engineer and now had to go hire Java developer, JavaScript developers, or they were more like they were a JavaScript developer and now they have to go hire full stack or backend or or a DBA or something. Because as much as the non-technical people like to say, Oh yeah, all that techie stuff. There was just various different types of depth that you can go through. You can be, you know, deep, deep into cybersecurity. You can go deep, deep into all these other areas. So, 
That's the first thing is they have to become more broad and, be, and have the ability to understand the other facets of the organization mm. on the technical perspective and be able to hire those people. Then they have to be able to manage, mm. which becomes very difficult, I think, because typically you have hired or co-founded a company with a CTO because they were a successful technical person, not because they were a successful manager. And you know, you look at the statistics, technical people tend to be very introverted. So they went into technology per, you know, mostly because they could be introverted and succeed. Mm. And now you're asking them to become an extroverted, you know, come to board meetings, manage mm. a staff. So that's actually something that's, you know, should be on your checklist as a as a founder or as a CTO that wants to be a founder is, you know, what are your people skills like? What are your mm. management skills like? So that's that next level. You know, you have to hire people, you have to mm. build and lead a team and manage a team. And then ultimately you get to you have to get to the point where you're not writing that code anymore and you are delegating. So I went through this at one of my very first startups where I went from that consulting company you asked me about to a startup and I think I had about 30 people on, 30 developers on staff and then on a much larger technical side. So the first thing I had to do was learn how QA was done professionally and learn how architecture was done. But then also like the network guys reported to me and I knew nothing about networking. So I had to hire a really strong like VP of networking or, and all that kind of stuff. And then I had to learn how to eventually let go once we hired the team and mentored the people. So it started my progression, I think a logical progression for everyone else, and I started by sitting in the code reviews. And I started by really evolving or maybe devolving from being the chief coder to being the chief architect, where they would go out and figure everything out and then come get approval from me. And even towards the very, very end, you know, you would eventually replace your CTO. The, the chief architect would probably even report into the CTO. Because remember, the CTO is going to the board meeting, the CTO is leading the team and hiring the architect. So probably always will have technical input, mm. but less and less as it progresses and becoming more and more of a business role. Mm. So if I were to sort of summarize kind of what you said, would the following statement be the right one? You start off with the role would start with coding mm -hmm. and then that role would move on to hiring. Then it would move on to helping manage those that have been hired. Uh, including becoming a chief architect as part of that process, eventually going to the point where you're almost entirely delegating. And by that point, you're, if you're not already doing so, you're probably communicating the company's technology strategy at the board level in the way that you, you talked about earlier. Would it be a correct statement to say that if you self-assess that at any given point you cannot level up on this scale that you've given me, that that's the point you need to bring in an external person to replace you in that CTO trajectory and there you should park yourself as maybe the role that you, you left at or is you leave the company? What, what have you seen, if, if you don't think that's a, the right statement, what have you seen be the way that people get around that limitation that they might have? So I agree with your statement 100% is that at some point, if that's the natural progression and you're struggling at one of them, whether it's the hiring, which is the very early stage, or whether it's the architecture, and some developers can't transform themselves from a developer to an architect. Mm. It's something that just takes... Honestly, that's one of the one of the few areas where just you need a few years under your belt to become a good architect because mm. you have to see what, what worked, what didn't work. Mm. And if you can't level up and get to the, that next step, that is the time that you should go in and consider hiring someone that has those skills and someone that has that ability. Mm. And I've actually seen it work. So at my last company, we built software development tools. And our CTO, and we were about 10 years old by the time the company was acquired. And the CTO, the original CTO, co-founder, was a coder. And to be honest, never did anything else. 
So he became the team lead, but he at first started hiring people and he still had the title of CTO for many years. Mm. But at one point, and this is probably about halfway through, he was reporting to people who were newly hired. Mm. And they would come to me and they'd be like, I was just recruited to be like VP of this division. They go, do I have this right? Where one of the founders and CTO reports to me? I'm like, yeah. Right? He just turned out to be a really awesome coder and he was a really good architect. So he turned out to be a good team lead coder and architect and stopped there. And eventually we did give the, the title CTO to somebody else and that actually, you know, that person is now still CTO of the company because it's a, you know, a wholly owned subsidiary of a larger company. But, and actually the, the guy who the coder is actually still there leading teams and coding. So that actually worked very, very well. I think what happens is people sometimes get really hung up on titles. Mm. And I say, you know, titles aren't important influences. Mm. And if you're, a, if you're the CTO, you think you, oh, I'm sorry, if you're a founder and you give up the CTO title and you're going to go have some different title, chances are you're still on the board, you're still a significant shareholder. Mm. Your voice is going to matter. It's just going to matter in a different way. Mm. No, that's great. I mean, that's, that's actually very actionable for a lot of people who, who are probably in that weird position of, of being torn between having to step away, but then having the emotional baggage of, of what that means to step away. Well, for one or two of our portfolio companies, the technical co-founder mm. has, has asked me to interview a CTO candidate. So the technical co-founder might have been like an electrical engineer. Now they're hiring software people to go build like iOS and Android apps and database architecture. And so he'll still be the chief, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, like engineer, chief architect or whatever, whatever their title is, and co-founder. Mm. They said, you know, we need your help because, you know, none of us are software and database and full stack JavaScript people. And you've got that background. So, yeah. so very self-actualized, right? Like when those founders asked me. And actually two different, two different companies in our portfolio have asked me to mm. perform that. So it's a it's, it's good trend. So you're absolutely right. I think a lot of people are facing this. Mm. And so... I guess if we sort of fast forward to today, now that you have all this experience under your belt and, and it helps you sort of in terms of helping companies that you have invested in, how has that shaped sort of your investment decision process now while you're at Fresco? Um, what, what's, what does a founder have to do to impress you? What, what's interesting is I don't necessarily, I, I had a friend just real briefly, and he was a founder in one of the companies I invested in uh, personally, right. and the company exited, and he lived in Hong Kong. And he was from the Bay Area, and he recently moved back to the Bay Area. And I've introduced him to one or two people. And one of them, that I didn't know that well. I just knew they had a really successful Kickstarter campaign, and they were hiring some folks. And he said the first question he got on the interview is, tell me something that will impress me. And I actually think that's a – I don't look for founders to impress me. I look for the found, and I, I, that experience solidified in what you said is that people are actually hiring wrong. And what, what I mean by that is you're, you're sitting down with your co-founder and say, we need to go hire somebody who's going to run HR. And what you typically do is you want to get the best person who ran HR that can possibly apply to your startup because you're going to think it's going to give you some credibility or you think you need it because you know nothing about HR. And now you've got all this like government liability because your company is like seven mm -hmm. people. So what do you do? You go, oh, look, this person ran HR like Goldman Sachs. Let's go hire them because they ran HR for like you know, 10,000 people. And we're seven. Well, if you hire someone that is coming in from 10,000 people to seven, they're going to bring the culture of the process and stuff. So it's premature scaling. So I look for founders that are more than willing not to do that, that are more than willing to um, just take it on themselves to some extent and say, you know what, let's hire an HR person worth 30 people. We'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. And more than willing to learn. And, and what I mean by that, just to explain a little more what I mean by the founder willing to take it on, I actually think hiring that HR person when you're seven people 
and you, when you need it, is actually a little bit of laziness. And what I mean by that is, I know there's only so many hours in the day, but the founders need to research what HR means as a strategy for their company before they actually go out and hire those people. Mm. Because too many times, it's almost like the beginning of our conversation, you asked me about the technical person learning about non-technical things. It's actually the same problem. If you go out and hire accounting and legal and HR and all those administrative type things or even other disciplines within the organization, if you're content like editorial and you know nothing about editorial, without spending you know a few weeks or months researching and, and doing it yourself and researching what the company needs, then you won't know what to hire. So I look for founders that have that type of intellectual curiosity, mm. but more importantly are coachable. So they'll be able to take the constructive feedback and I'm going to say I don't look for someone to impress me, but I do look for somebody when during a pitch I'll deliberately maybe, I shouldn't give all my secrets away, but I'll deliberately ask a couple questions that are framing and see how they respond to it. And if it's a very defensive response, um, I'm thinking, hmm, you know, is this what I'm going to be dealing with in a board meeting? Is this what I'm going to be dealing with when, you know, maybe they're running out of money and they yeah. need to take some tough advice? Or they kind of sit back and they say things like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Like, that's a clue for me. Yeah. Oh, and someone says, I never thought of it that way. And they actually pause and lose their train of thought. To me, that's like the best thing you possibly can do. That's very, very useful. Cool. Well, we always like to wrap things up with a chance for you to plug uh, some cause or some some business or, or something that you're very passionate about. Wondering if you want, had any. Well, I run a charity trek to Nepal almost well, every year, except for this year because my wife is expecting. And it raises money for um, a, a village in, in Nepal where all the Sherpas that climb up Mount Everest go. And what, one of the things that we do is we built a school in the village. And we took us years to build this school. But then after the earthquake, we had to rapidly go and rebuild the school in a really, really record amount of time and go back to our original donors. So it is called um, Education Elevated. And it's a nonprofit based in the United States, and you can go find it. And I'm not asking to go donate, but consider maybe going to Nepal one year or going on one of these treks. It's all tech people. It's like 10 tech geeks climbing a mountain, like going to Mount Everest Base Camp or something. And then just a portion of the money you've paid goes into the, um, you know, goes into the school and endows for a teacher and all that type of stuff. So I've always felt... Education elevated. Education elevated. And the, and the reason why I think this community would find it interesting is because I could have went and it's... It's a longer story that I won't get into, but it's really the Sherpa I used on one of my very first trips in, in Nepal. And I find that so many people want to give money away. And I feel like that's great. I mean, people want to give money. But it's more important is we taught it. a bunch of us, we're all entrepreneurs, and this was about 15 years ago. Instead of giving him money, which we eventually did, but we taught him how to build a trekking business. And now he's an entrepreneur and he employs like, you know, you know like hundreds of people over the hundreds of people over the years. And he's the economic engine of actually that whole entire village. So it's a way that you can use, you're supporting entrepreneurship, not just a great cause of getting, you know, young kids in a remote village educated, but it's actually helping, you know, these guys build their trucking business as well. That's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. Cool. Thanks for joining, Stephen. Thanks for having me. All right. Till next time, guys. Bye.